Good evening and welcome to our evening worship service. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 51, verses 12 through 17. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Let us pray. Father, we come to you with broken and contrite spirits, confessing that we are sinners, but clinging to your amazing grace, asking that in that grace you would now condescend to meet with us, to receive our worship, and to be glorified in this hour, even as we're edified. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 164, O for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. You may be seated. If you would take your bulletin in hand, you'll find in our order of worship the corporate confession of sin. We'll use these words to corporately confess our sins aloud to God, and after that we'll have a few moments of silence so that we can silently confess our sin and also lift up any burdens that we may have to the Lord tonight. So let us all pray together. Almighty God, who does freely pardon all who repent and turn to him. 
Now fulfill in every contrite heart the promise of redeeming grace, forgiving all our sins, and cleansing us from an evil conscience through the perfect sacrifice of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for your matchless grace tonight. Tune our hearts to sing thy grace. Uh, If we had a thousand tongues to sing, Lord, it would not be enough to sound our Redeemer's praise. And so we come not only confessing our sins, but confessing our constant need for Christ. And so we pray that you would have mercy on us, sinners, and pray as we close out this Lord's Day in the Lord's house with the Lord's people, that you would be pleased to minister to us, to give us strength to meet every trial that we might face in the week to come, and to walk through this world with contrite hearts, always ready to turn away from our sin and turn toward your grace and love. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our assurance of pardon comes from 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10, which says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all righteousness because Jesus Christ's death has satisfied the justice of God and granted us his saving grace and mercy. So receive his forgiveness tonight. Now while we are taking the offertory, we will sing together hymn number 528, which is My Faith Looks Up to Thee.
Our scripture reading tonight can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, we'll be reading verses 8 through 10. And before I read this, let me pray for us. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Without it, we walk in darkness. So send out your light, send out your truth. Let them lead us to your holy hill, the place you choose to dwell, and we will worship you. So speak now for your servants here. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 through 10. Hear God's grace. Last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. And this ends the reading of God's Word. So on Sunday nights this month, we are talking about the subject of spiritual slumps. We all go through times in our walks with Christ, in our spiritual lives, where we go through down times, through slumps. And we're talking about principles we can use to help us deal with those slumps, Um, I've based the outline of the series on Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Its Causes and Cures. So last week, we talked about dealing with guilt over past sins. How do you deal with those sins that still continue to haunt you, even though they've happened years ago? Well, this week, we're going to talk about dealing with regrets. Lloyd-Jones called his sermon, Vain Regrets. You know, I'm fascinated by words, and I was thinking about the word regret, and I asked myself, what does that really mean? There's obviously a re on the beginning of that. That's obviously a compound word, but I'd never thought about it. And what I found out was that the word gret on the back end of that re is the shorthand version of an old English word that meant to weep. So to regret is to re-weep. It's to weep over something again and again that happened long ago in the past, or even in the short term. In the past. Now, we're not talking tonight necessarily about regret over sin in particular, but just regret. It could be regret over the fact that you didn't become a Christian until later in life. You know, Paul had to deal with the regret that he was one untimely born, as he put it, that he came to faith late, that he was the last of the apostles that Christ appeared to, and over the fact that in his previous life he had persecuted the church. So it could be coming to faith later in life. It could be not taking your faith seriously when you were young. You wasted so much time. Paul could have said that about himself. And you know, as a minister, I keep track of themes. When I hear, when, I, when I'm talking to people, I listen for themes that pop up over and over again. And I found over the last few years, one of the most recurring conversational themes I've had 
is older people coming to me and saying that they regret when they were younger, they didn't take their faith seriously. And because they didn't take it as seriously then, they didn't pass it on to their children. And now they have regret over the fact that they think that their children have shipwrecked their lives and it's their fault. And so they're filled with regret. You know, you could have regrets over a rough childhood, over an unfollowed opportunity, over a career mistake, taking the wrong job, not accepting the right job, over a swing and miss that happened when you were a teenager. How many movies are based on premises like that? Regret over a lost game, regret over a lost love. Regret. Re-weeping something from the past. So we face a problem in that when we become Christians, we know, or we should know, that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins, that we're justified through faith in Him, and now we're accepted with God, but we're still left to deal with this fact, this idea. We still have things we regret that we did in the past, and the fact that we're forgiven for them doesn't change the fact that we, they happened. So how do we deal with them? How can the gospel stop us from thinking about the bad stuff that we did? And if it can't stop us from thinking about it, what can it do for us? That's the question. So two points to talk about it. I want to talk about how regret can become a trap. Secondly, how we can get out of that trap. So number one, how regret can become a trap. So you'll see Paul from time to time looking back at his past. He does so in our passage. Verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, past tense. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He talks about the past, but he adds that but. But, now things are different. I was that, but now I am this. I did that, but now I am doing this. I am not what I once was. You have to add that but to the end of your regrets, or they will become a trap. Heard an example of this a while back that there's someone living in the trap of past regrets, Teddy Atlas world-class boxing trainer, was talking about when he used to help train Mike Tyson. And he tells a story about Tyson that when he was a kid, and you picture Mike Tyson, mean, tough, every physical gift, knocking people out in 30 seconds in boxing matches back in the 80s. When he was a kid, he was bullied relentlessly in a terrible neighborhood. And he was bullied so much, he he found a dilapidated house that had a hollow wall in it. And so he would shimmy inside that wall when bullies were chasing him to hide from them. And he would stand inside that hollow wall and cry, just hoping that his bullies would miss him and would would go away. And this haunted Tyson for the rest of his life. Teddy Atlas said, "When when you're a kid and you have to hide in a wall, to a certain extent you never get out of that wall. Tyson had so much physical talent, Atlas said. The problem was, until later in his career... He never really got tested. And he said, until you really get tested, you're never really in a fight. So when Atlas got tested, like against Evander Holyfield, who was called the real deal, that was his nickname, um, because he was the real deal, Tyson shut down, he gave up, he bit Holyfield's ear so he could get out of the fight. He went back and hid in his wall, Atlas said. He could have said, I used to hide in walls, but now I'm the baddest man on the planet. 
I used to hide in walls and get beat up by bullies, but now I'm the heavyweight champion of the world. But instead, when he was pressed, he went back to hiding in walls. He shut down. He couldn't handle it. The same thing can happen to us with regret. We can regret. We can re-weep our past, and we can find ourselves trapped. We can say, I messed up in college, and now I'm trapped in that, in that mistake for the rest of my life. I lost my true love, and now I'll never find true love or happiness. I chose the wrong career, and so I'm trapped. Paul could have been trapped in his past identity. I persecuted the church. But instead, he fought for the church, and he gave his life for the church. So not getting trapped in past regrets. So if we find ourselves trapped, how can we get out? That's the next question, number two. Here's what Paul says in verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I. And he's talking about the apostles. That's a big statement. I worked harder than the other apostles. Harder than Peter. Harder than John. Though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. Paul could have spent his time regretting that he spent too many years not believing in Christ and persecuting the church. Instead he says, by the grace of God I am what I am. And God's grace was not toward me in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So here are two principles for getting out of the regret, regret trap. The first one is this. Know that by the grace of God, you are what you are. Not what you were, but what you are. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I know of no more profound words in Scripture than this in some sense. I heard a talk by John Piper years ago. Changed my life. He said, he was talking to preachers, and he said, a on your sermon notes, before every sermon, right above it, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You can't be anybody else but you. You can only be you. Oscar Wilde said, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. You may not have the perfect story. You may not have the perfect past. You may not have the perfect life. You may not have the perfect gifts. You may be full of regret. But God has made you to be you and to live the story that he has for you. Don't you dare forget that, ever. God has allowed you to experience what you've experienced to make you who you are. Charles Spurgeon, again, talking to a group of ministers. He acknowledged the fact that he struggled mightily with depression for most of his life, on top of other physical ailments. He died in his 50s. He suffered greatly, as did his wife. And after a bout of depression, he was explaining to this group of ministers. He said, one Sabbath morning, I preached from the text, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And though I did not say so, yet I preached my own experience. Well, that's a bold thing to say. I heard my own chains clank while I tried to preach to my fellow prisoners in the dark. But I could not tell why I was brought into such an awful horror of darkness. For which I condemned myself. On the following Monday evening, a man came to me who bore all the marks of despair upon his countenance. His hair seemed to stand up on edge, and his eyes were ready to start from their sockets. He said to me after a little parlaying, I never before in my life heard any man speak who seemed to know my heart such as you did. Mine is a terrible case, but on Sunday morning you painted me to the life and preached as if you had been inside my soul. Spurgeon says, 
by God's grace, I saved that man from suicide and led him into gospel light and liberty. But I know I could not have done it if I had not myself been confined to the dungeon in which he lay. I tell you the story, brethren, because you sometimes may not understand your own experience. And the perfect people may condemn you for having it. But what know they of God's servants? Three profound things there at the end, right? You won't always understand your own experiences. And the perfect people may condemn you for your experiences. But he says, what know they of God's servants? God made you who you are for a reason. Spurgeon could say, God, why the depression? And at the end of the day, the answer is, because I'm going to send you to depressed people who you can minister to. You know, it's why the divorce? Well, maybe I'm going to send you to divorced people who you can minister to. Why did you go through all you did as a child? Maybe so that you could minister to children who are going through something like you did. I mean, Paul says in another place that blessed be the God of all comforts who comforts us in every affliction so that we can comfort those who are in every affliction. By the grace of God, you are what you are. And don't you forget it. One more place in Paul. In 1 Corinthians 4, 3. And following, he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. He says, you know, people are going to judge you. They're going to judge me for our experience. He says, who cares? I don't even judge myself. Christ has taken the gavel out of their hands and he's taken the gavel out of our hands. We can't even judge ourselves anymore. Instead, it's Christ who judges us. And that's good news. Because the compassion of God is greater than the compassion of men. By the grace of God, we are what we are. Now here's the second principle from the passage. Paul says God's grace toward him was not in vain. On the contrary, he worked harder than any of them. Someone has said, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones summarized the principle of this verse. He said, the past is only useful to you in terms of how it can motivate you in the present and for the future. Say that again. The past is only useful to you in terms of how it can motivate you in the present and for the future. Here's another way of putting it. If you're thinking about regrets of the past, you need to do one of two things. Either forget it or use it. These are the only two options other than getting bogged down in that trap of regret. You can forget it. Philippians 3.13, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Lloyd-Jones said, let the past guilt bury itself. Dwelling on your past failures are making you a failure in the present. So you strain forward. You forget it. Well, that's easier said than done. But if you can't forget it, then Paul's other answer is simply, use it. Use it. He used it for motivation. He says, yes, I lost time. Yes, I wasted time. But now I'm going to outwork everybody. I'm going to use it as fuel for present ministry. Not only that, he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He's saying, 
I can use my past regret as fuel for present and future ministry, and all the more so knowing that I'm not on my own. Yes, it's me who's got to do the work, but it's the grace of God that's in me. It's me, but it's not me. And someone asked Charles Spurgeon how he did the work of two men, and Spurgeon's answer was, you have forgotten, there are two of us. He believed Christ was at work within him. And so he used his regrets, he used his pains, he used his suffering as fuel for ministry. There are so many stories of people who used pain and regrets as fuel. You could go on and on all day. But one of my favorites is this. What do the following people have in common? And you can answer this. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Jackson, Herbert Hoover, Andrew Johnson, James Garfield, James Monroe, Rutherford B. Hayes, Gerald Ford, and Bill Clinton. What do they have in common? Okay, I heard somebody say it. Yes, they were all presidents. But they were all presidents who lost their fathers before they turned 16 years old. They lost their fathers 16 and younger in their lives. Dan Barker, in his book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, uh, comments on this. He says, there's no doubt that for many, losing a parent at a young age is regrettable with profound negative effects. But for some... Researchers theorize that such a tragedy instills in a child the feeling that the world is not safe and that an immense amount of energy and effort will be needed to survive. And these orphans then overcompensate and turn tragedy into fuel for greatness. Malcolm Gladwell calls this the imminent orphan phenomenon. See, men who equally face terrible tragedy in their past, something extremely regrettable, something they could get trapped in for the rest of their lives. They could say, poor pitiful me. I'll never make anything out of myself. I didn't have a father. But some of them choose to use it as fuel. And it fuels them for greatness. Another example was every September 11th, around that time of year, I always think of Wells Crowther, the story of the man in the red bandana. Um, Boston College has red bandana, bandana day, the first Saturday football game after September 11th every year and my friend Jeremy texted me on Saturday and said Florida State is a 30 point favorite against Boston College you don't just waltz waltz into Boston College on red bandana day and win by 30 and they didn't Florida State won they won by three (laughs) Boston College covered the spread so what's the red bandana day about Wells Crowther young man raised in a Christian home He dies in the rubble of the Twin Towers on September 11th, 2001. Throughout the documentary, Tom Rinaldi produced a documentary for ESPN. It's one of my favorite sports documentaries. um, And also produced a book called The Man in the Red Bandana, which sits on my desk. I I, I see it. It inspires me all the time. So his, Wells' parents tell the story that when he was a boy, his dad gave him a handkerchief for blowing his nose. And he loved it. But he thought that the word handkerchief sounded like it was for a sissy. So he called it a bandana. It was his red bandana. Wells was a great kid. He was captain of the hockey team. He was a star lacrosse player. He went on to play lacrosse at Boston College. And he always wore the red bandana under his helmet. It was kind of his calling card. He was also a a junior volunteer firefighter when he was young. And he wore that red bandana under his fireman's helmet as well. He was a fireman, a junior fireman, because he loved to help people, he said. 
Well, he graduates from Boston College and he takes a job in New York City as an equity trader. His office is on the 104th floor of the South Tower in the World Trade Center. Shortly before 9-11, he calls his dad and says, I'm regretting taking this job. I can't just sit in an office the rest of my life. I should have become a fireman full-time. Well, here he is in the World Trade Center, and now he's buried under the rubble, and his parents are asking why. He called his mom and left a voicemail after the first plane struck the tower and said, I'm okay. But he never made it out, and they never heard from him again. Then his parents saw a story in the New York Times that interviewed survivors who were describing what was taking place in the Twin Towers after the planes struck. And one woman told the story of how a man wearing a red bandana had led a rescue party back and forth between the stairwell over and over again and had saved at least a dozen people through his heroics. Story after story came in about this man in the red bandana who saved person after person. He saved them from the fire that day. And that's why he died. And of course, Wells' mother tracked down this woman who had been interviewed who had mentioned this man in the red bandana. She got to meet her and she showed her a picture of Wells and said, was this the man? And the woman said, yes, absolutely. That was him. Wells had died as a hero. He had all those regrets. Regrets not becoming a fireman. And here in the moment of tragedy, what does he do? He uses it as fuel. And he lays down his life to save at least a dozen people out of the rubble and out of the fire on September 11th. I love that story on so many levels, but his, Wells' parents... Throughout that documentary, they quote the verse, Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Wells did for them exactly what Jesus has done for us. He faced death so that he could save us. But he didn't wallow in his regrets. Instead, he used them to fuel him to action. And so he became a hero. And though he's dead, yet his life still speaks like the blood of Abel. Don't let regrets stunt your growth as a Christian. Don't let the fear of the future, of future regret, paralyze you. And don't let past regret paralyze you. Psalm 56, verse 8. It's a good verse to memorize. David says to God, You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not written in your book? His hope was that God knew every one of David's regrets. That's what gives David hope, that God knows, not that he doesn't know. It's, and that it was all part of God's plan. It was all written in his book. God was using every one of those tears to make David into the person God wanted David to be. That was David's hope. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis summarizes how God uses our tears so well. He says, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasures, they say, let me have but this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate even the pleasures of sin. Both processes begin even before death. 
the good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost will say, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. One of the things about the book of Revelation, one of the things it says about Jesus, in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, it says, Jesus will wipe away every tear. That means no more regret. It means no more re-weeping. Does it mean that we won't remember anything that ever happened to us in our lives? Any of the bad stuff that we did or left undone? I don't, I don't think it means that. It more likely means that we're going to see finally and fully that God used all of those vain regrets those things we went through to lead us to Christ, that they were all part of that plan. And looking back, it'll seem as though we were always in heaven because God always had a plan to get us into his presence. God always had a plan that we could say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. If you know he's going to wipe away all those tears in the future, can you dare to believe that he can wipe away those tears now? Let's pray. Father, as the hymn says, maybe years we spent in vanity and pride, caring not our Lord was crucified, caring not it was for me he died on Calvary. Mercy there is great and grace is free. And so we draw near to Christ, believing that as he will wipe away our future tears, so he can wipe away our present tears. As he died to save us not only from our sins, but for the pain and guilt of our past regrets, I pray that you would help us to stop thinking about the things of the past that paralyze us, and to think about them only in as much as we could use those memories for fuel, for present and future ministry and present and future glory as we bring those things to our Savior and see him wash our sins and our regrets as white as snow. We thank you that your grace is greater than the grace of man. We thank you that you are far more ready to forgive than we are to confess. And we thank you that by the grace of God we are who we are. Help us to be those versions of ourselves that you've ordained that we should be for the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 699, Like a River Glorious.
Amen. Now grace, mercy, and peace be with you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.